Welcome to The Secret Life of Dietitians. I'm Laura Poland. And I'm Amy Keller. Today we're going to start with a disclaimer. We haven't really <laughs> done these on this show, but I think this one is important because this is kind of a, a sensitive subject, mm-hmm. pun intended. Um, <laughs> so this, this particular podcast is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have particular questions about um, a potential food sensitivity or food allergy in your child, you need to bring this up with the child's physician um, and not necessarily try anything at home on your own. Okay, so today Amy is talking about food allergy and intolerance. So let's kind of start. What is a food allergy? So food allergy is an immune response to a particular food. And I think this is where you and I kind of see patients say that they're allergic to things. Yes. You know, I'm allergic to, you know, peanuts or I'm allergic to mushrooms or I'm allergic to whatever. Yeah. Um, And most of the time I, oh, okay, you have an allergy. And I take that very seriously. I work in a hospital and, and, you know, we see allergy on that list for a patient. I mean, it is a strict avoidance Mm -hmm. of the allergy, uh, the reported allergy, no matter what it might be. But I think there's a lot of situations where people say they have an allergy to something and maybe they don't actually have an allergy. And I'm not trying to say people are making it up. That's not what I'm saying. But they're having another physical reaction to food that is not actually an allergy. So there are two types of immune responses to food. One's called an IgE-mediated, and the other one's called a non-IgE-mediated. Okay. I think that the thing that's important, and we're going to stress this a couple of times, is that a true food allergy needs to occur every time the food is eaten. Gotcha. So if it's, um, well, I can have a little bit of egg, but if Uh I have too much, then I have an allergy. Right. That's not an allergy. Um, it's one of those all in none, right, all or none. Right. It's it, I always tell people it's not all or none, but with allergies, it is. Right. And this, okay. again, so these symptoms should occur each time that the food is eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also interesting to note that eight foods make up 90% of our allergies in the United States. The most common are milk, egg, and peanut. And then other foods that people can be allergic to include wheat, tree nuts, shellfish, fish, and soy. Okay. Um, and it's also really common. Yeah. Food, true food allergies affect 5 to 8% of children. And I think it's important to note, especially for kids with food allergies, this is a life-changing diagnosis and not something to be taken lightly. Right. A child who has a true food allergy mm-hmm. who can develop anaphylaxis, you know, and, and potentially, unfortunately, even die. Mm-hmm. And we see these publicized, you know, deaths from food allergies. These are really serious, and they sort of dramatically change a family's life. It certainly changes a child's life, because if you think about in all the situations in which we eat or we eat away from home where you don't have as much control over what you're eating. Okay. Um, And so I think that's really important to realize that they are very serious. True food allergies are extremely serious and should be taken very seriously. Right. Um, Like I said, they're super common. 15 million people in the United States have a food allergy, and about 6 million of those are children under the age of 18. And of course, we'll talk a little bit about who grows out of what here in a little bit, because some kids can grow out of food allergies. Interesting. I know you mentioned to me before we got started that you had your son grew out, you think of an allergy. True. Um, I personally grew out of a milk allergy Uh um, from when I was a little kid. By about the age of five, I had grown out of it. 
But like I said, one in three people report having a food allergy, but only one in 20 actually do. Okay. And so there's a lot of confusion about what's an allergy, what's an intolerance. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of confusion about how you test for these things. And we're going to get into a deeper dive into that a little bit later. Yes. I don't know if you hear this. I hear this a lot. People say, well, why are there more food allergies than ever? Yes, I hear that a lot. How often do you you hear from patients? Yeah. Or, you know, when I was a kid, no one was allergic to peanuts. Right. Yeah. You know, maybe food allergies are on the rise, but there's not necessarily any particular reason. Uh Uh-huh. It's probably a combination of genetics um, and early exposures. Um, You might have heard of maybe the hygiene hypothesis that as people have moved away from living on farms and in particular farm animals and farm animals species, Uh, you know, uh that maybe there's a, a, we're not exposed. Our immune systems are a little bit bored and they're not exposed to the things that they were growing, you know, uh, maybe at previous generations growing up in more of an agricultural type of setting. That's interesting because it's kind of almost the opposite of what people think, right? right? So you think when somebody's going to be allergic to the food that you don't want that they're just going to be allergic to it. Right. So you don't want them around it. Like right. you, so that's what happened to us with peanuts, right? Right. So in a lot of situations. Yeah. Where so we were avoiding them and maybe cause the problem to become bigger. more significant. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So it's interesting that expo- and I, that I, that makes sense to me though too. And I think it might make sense to a lot of people because um, my son was also allergic to some environmental things. Mm-hmm. One of them was, a ch- was cats, but we had cats. And right. the funny thing was he would only, so this is where it gets a little confusing too though he really reacted he was probably reacting to our cats but mm-hmm. built up a tolerance to our cats but if he was around other cats he would have a different he would have a bigger reaction interesting and so so yeah so that does get down to that exposure too yeah. as being a bit a little bit of a part of it that's right? very interesting i'm not sure in terms of environmental allergens how that's, that's different. different from food yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but let's just talk a little okay. bit about those, what those different kinds of allergies are. Okay. The IgE-mediated allergy is, again, what we commonly think of when you think of somebody having an allergic reaction to food. So an IgE is a specific antibody is formed and it attaches to those cells, those allergy cells throughout the body. And it causes that very immediate reaction. So minutes to hours of those symptoms that can be quite severe and scary. Uh-huh. You know, yeah. hives and swelling, difficulty breathing, difficulty swallowing, vomiting. Okay. Again, it can progress to a loss of consciousness and in some situations, death. Right. Very, very serious. This is where people should be prepared with epinephrine, right. a pen, yeah. to be able to stop these reactions mm-hmm. um, and, and to realize that it's really important, especially you know, kids and teenagers, that they're carrying their EpiPens. Epi- yeah. You know, it's mm-hmm. hard to convince those teenagers that they need them, right. but they do. Yep. Again, I can't stress enough, symptoms have to occur from an IgE-mediated allergy every time the person ingests the food. Okay. So it happens to happen every time. Okay. A non-IgE-mediated reaction is a little bit different. It's still the immune system reacting, Mm -hmm. but it's more of a delayed onset reaction to food. So this is instead of allergy cells, this goes after other parts of the immune system called our T-cells. Okay. But the symptoms are not immediate and onset. So it could take hours to days to, to develop a reaction. And instead of affecting more respiratory symptoms, we talk kind of more often see things in the GI tract. Okay. So upset stomach, diarrhea, and vomiting. 
And then there finally is that mixed reaction where somebody can have features of both. They can have a little bit of an IgE reaction and a non-IgE reaction. Are those that's what we call a mixed reaction? Okay, and these are all allergies. These are all true, these are food, all true food, food allergies. allergies. Right. So even if it's not immediate, it's still an allergy. Yes. Okay. Because yeah, you have the same symptoms every time. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Cool. What's a little bit different is this word intolerance. So an intolerance is a non-immunological response to food. And symptoms can vary. You may have had clients, I know I certainly have, who are lactose intolerant. Yes. And there are situations where they can have a little bit of lactose. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. And then there are situations where you have patients who can't have any Yes. Of any, you know, mm-hmm. just any amount. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes they'll have a little bit of a, an upset stomach or bloating or gassiness. And then sometimes it's really bad when they've had a lot of lactose uh-huh. and they're really quite sick. Again, the most often symptoms that we see with intolerances include these sort of GI symptoms. Um, and then sort of common food intolerances that we see, especially in practice, are lactose, wheat, and gluten. Okay. They're not always immediate reactions because, again, sometimes they have to get into the digestive tract, and they're also not always reproducible. So not like a true allergy where it's happening kind of that same way all the time. This is not always reproducible and may be affected by other things. And so that's what they call an intolerance. An intolerance. Okay. So some takeaway points for this, which I think are really remembering, good to remember. If someone can eat a food without developing symptoms, it is, they are not allergic to that food. Okay. So people say, well, you know, maybe I've got some hidden food allergies I didn't know about. Uh Uh-huh. It's not true. If you are not having symptoms when you eat eggs, you are not allergic to eggs. Gotcha. If you are not having symptoms when you, you know, eat peanuts, you're not allergic to peanuts. Okay. So if you can eat it without developing symptoms, you do not have an allergy. Okay. A positive test for a food allergy, and of course a lot of people pursue allergy testing Mm -hmm. um, with a physician, does not on its own diagnose an allergy. So... A test is just one part of the picture. So people come in, they say, I'm having you know, hives when I eat peanuts. Uh-huh. Then they test them for a peanut allergy. Yes, they indeed do test positive for a peanut allergy. It's very likely that they have that. Okay. Screening panels where somebody might run a variety of, of yes, food allergens that's what my on my son you. had yeah. to do. <laughs> um, are not really helpful because if the person is not having symptoms... But their screening panel comes back positive for, you know, three different foods. If they're not having symptoms when they eat those foods, Uh it is not an appropriate reason to diagnose them without allergy. Um, And that happens then to kind of end up putting with people, you know, sort of unnecessary restrictions on their diet. Uh So, again, if somebody tests positive for a particular food allergy, Mm -hmm. but they're having no symptoms when they eat that food in any form, then they're not allergic to it. Interesting. So skin and blood tests are helpful, but they're not really useful for the diagnosis of allergy. Again, they can help rule out different allergens, but they're just one piece of that diagnostic puzzle. Okay. The gold standard for testing for food allergies is what they call the Physician Supervised Oral Food Challenge. And this is going to be done by an allergist. Mm-hmm. And this is really the only people who should be doing these. Okay. Don't do. Don't let a chiropractor do this. <laughs> um, don't you know, do this at home. Right, don't do this at home. Person is supervised while gradually eating increasing amounts of that suspected allergen. Okay. It also is helpful when to see if somebody's grown out of an allergy. So if you have a child who's had a milk allergy and you want to see 
test. I wonder if they can tolerate milk okay. now. This might be a, a route to pursue with your, your child's allergist. Again, do not try this at home okay. um, by <laughs> testing to see, you know, how much, you know, milk your child can drink just before right. they get allergic right. or symptoms. That is not appropriate if your child has a, gotcha. a documented milk allergy. Absolutely. Okay. okay. So... Let's say you find out you have an allergy, right. and this is very serious, how do you avoid? Right, so the first place is to look at that food label. And if you don't have food allergies, you've probably seen this stuff on the food label and maybe not really thought about it, kind mm-hmm. of just sort of blew past it, because yep. if it doesn't apply to you, it doesn't sometimes yep. usually mean much. Mm-hmm. But any food that contains one of those eight major allergens has to be clearly labeled on the ingredients list mm-hmm. of any FDA regulated products. So this is anything, all of our packaged foods, our shelled eggs, dietary supplements, but even USDA regulated regulated foods like our meat, our poultry, uh-huh. are in mostly involuntary compliance with this labeling act. So in 2004, they passed a labeling law that said any of those eight major allergens must be clearly spelled out on the ingredients list okay. or in a contained statement. Usually be both. You'll uh-huh. see it in the ingredients list. You'll see something that'll say like, you know, modified food starch in parentheses wheat. Uh-huh. That's how they're calling that out. And then also, you'll gotcha. also see a statement that says contains wheat. Uh-huh. Okay. That's how I often, you'll see it most, of, most often you'll see it at both places. So when you see that, you'll know that, again that they cannot hide it. So uh-huh. I think there's also an impression that food manufacturers are out to get us and they're going to stick a, right. a major food allergen under natural flavorings. They're just not legally permitted to do that. Right. So if you don't see it there on an FDA regulated product and it's, on most USDA products, uh-huh. it's not it's not there. It's safe. They're not allowed yet. Yeah, they're not allowed to hide it. Okay. Where it gets really tricky are some of those manufacturing statements. And this is tricky for people with celiac disease, but it's really tricky for the food allergy community, yeah. community in my opinion. I've seen so those, like where it says may contain. Right, or like, made in a facility or the, made on yeah. shared equipment. Yeah. Those statements just irritate me. <laughs> I guess is the best way to say it because they don't mean anything. There is no regulation around them. Uh-huh. The you know, they're voluntary on the part of manufacturers. I think a lot of situations people see them as a CYA type of statement hmm. on the part of the manufacturer and so or they see that oh well that you know they think I'm going to sue them or something. Yeah. There is not any regulation around those statements, and so at this time they're not particularly helpful okay. for people with celiac disease. But even with people with food allergies, they're not that helpful. Right. Um, they're not supposed to take the place of good manufacturing practices. So, cleaning equipment, having an allergen control plan. Right. This, you know, slapping a statement on there does not take the place of, of cleaning your equipment or having good manufacturing practices. Yeah. Is that something that the manufacturers are doing themselves or yes. is it something that's regulated? There's absolutely no regulations mm-hmm. around who uses what statement and when they use it. Okay. And so you might even have, you know, a, a product that says made in a shared facility with dairy. Yeah. And it might be 500 yards away in another part of the plant. Yeah. But it's technically a shared facility. Or you could have something that's made on shared equipment and, you know, they've got runs going of one thing that has the allergen and one that doesn't. Okay. Again, it doesn't take the place of cleaning that equipment. And so... Is it a liability issue then? I wonder about that, if that's the reason it's being used. Uh But... 
even research has shown around those may contain statements, there is no rhyme or reason mm-hmm. to when they're used, and there certainly is no rhyme or reason to indicate contamination with the product. With the product, so. The National Institutes of Health put out a statement in 2011 that said that people with food allergies should avoid products with these statements. Mm -hmm. And so that's my line at this point. If you have a true food allergy, you should still avoid these products. But research has shown since 2011 that they're not really predicting any type of contamination. Okay. So I wish they would That's regulate them. I'm hoping that, that that eventually we'll see some regulation yeah. of those, but it, it hasn't happened at this point. Okay. And then again, I think it's important to note that this particular food allergy regulation doesn't apply to things like cosmetics or shampoo or other health and beauty aids, which mm. could contain things like tree nut extracts or wheat proteins. Okay. So again, food label or label reading is super important. You know, and if you have any questions about something, if you have a food allergy, calling the manufacturer never hurts. Gotcha. You know, and yeah. if you don't feel like you get a good answer from maybe the customer service representative on the phone, yeah. ask to speak to somebody a little bit higher up. So food is regulated in regarding to these allergies, yes. but not, not anything cosmetic, else. Not cosmetics. Um, well, dietary supplements are regulated by okay. the FDA, but things like for, for this particular for the, purpose. Say, yes. yeah. They're not regulated okay. by the FDA for other reasons, <laughs> but for this particular purpose, they are regulated Okay. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about when food allergies develop. Like I said, most you know situations when we think about somebody with a food allergy, we think about a child mm-hmm. who develops a food allergy, but they can absolutely develop as adults. The most common food allergies for an adult is shellfish, but also tree nuts, peanuts, and fish. Peanuts and tree nuts sometimes even um, maybe carry over from childhood. Uh-huh. You know, most children will grow out of a milk allergy or an egg allergy, but most children will not grow out of a peanut or a tree nut allergy. Those will linger mm-hmm. into adulthood, unfortunately. I think that the crazy thing with adults is sometimes an allergic reaction that non-IgE, where it's more in the gut, more in uh-huh. the stomach, can be mistaken for the stomach flu. Yeah. Or food poisoning. Uh-huh. Um, and adults don't always pay attention sometimes to right? what they're eating, and sometimes right. they sort of blow off symptoms. So, again, I think that's something that it can absolutely develop in an adult, but it's, it's not as common as in children. Okay. Um, like I said, children generally, but do not always grow out of food allergens. Okay. So, again, if you have a child, you know, who has a peanut allergy, you can't assume that, you know, eventually they'll be able to eat it. Oh, because yeah. most kids are not going to grow out of that. Okay. If a food allergy develops when you're an adult, it's really unlikely you will Ever. Eventually outgrow it. Right. Gotcha. Right. Food allergies in adults tend to be more lifelong. Um, again, there's not been a lot of research in this area, hmm. but they tend to linger for, for the rest of your life. Okay. So this is the good. We have very strict diag- you know, diagnostic criteria for true food allergies. So a gui- the guidelines from the National Institutes of Health say that an IgE-mediated allergy should be diagnosed on that clinical history that's okay. going to be taken by the allergist, and then skin prick testing, blood testing, or again, that gold standard of that physician-supervised oral food challenge. Okay. So that's the good. Right. Now let's get into the bad. I was going to say, I think <laughs> I've heard of other tests that are out there. Absolutely. And so you're saying this is the test. This, that, that okay. Is, that's that's the good. This is okay. how we do this. Okay. 
things you should not do to diagnose a food allergy. And I'm not going to go into all of these, but there are some crazy stuff. Uh Um, One that I've seen a lot, and maybe you see, I think it sort of ends up in my Facebook ads and things like that, is these ALCAT tests. Yes, I have Um, seen these. And what they say happens with an ALCAT test is um, there are changes to white blood cells that take place in the, the presence of certain allergens, but there's no evidence that these are helpful or diagnosable for food allergies, so they should not be used. So if somebody's selling you an ALCAT test, it is not appropriate. Right. Here's here's my favorite, applied kinesiology. (laughs) I've actually seen this at a health fair before. Oh my gosh, it was hilarious. And I was just How could this be a thing? I just couldn't believe that they were doing this at a health fair. Ah! (laughs) So there's the idea behind this test is that some foods weaken your body by blocking your energy fields, which is always (laughs) a great way to start. Um, So the practitioner has you hold a particular food allergen in one hand. Nobody can see this, but she's doing the move motion. This is what they were doing. They were having them hold their hands out like this. Right. And then they're going to check to see if your other arm becomes weak when you're holding the container of milk. Um, And that muscle weakness is sort of thought to signal that allergy to food. Please do not engage in this type of testing. This is not appropriate. There is cytotoxic assay testing, which is where a blood sample is spun in a lab and the separated blood is then exposed to different types of allergens on slides and looked under a microscope. And so the thought here is if they expose your blood sample to milk protein or peanut protein, okay. um, if the cells disappear, this indicates a sensitivity or an allergen. Again, this if is not cells disappear, disappear on the microscope. I'm I, just saying. Okay. <laughs> Um, then there's the, the one that's kind of scary to me because I think it could be dangerous. Mm-hmm. This is very different, again, from the physician oral supervised food challenge, which is a, an actual test. This is called the provocation and neutralization test. Okay. So small amounts of the test substance are injected under the skin or they put them on the patient's tongue mm. to get symptoms. If yeah. there are symptoms, they don't stop. They give more. Oh, you have a larger dose that will somehow supposedly neutralize the first dose. So if you had somebody who actually had an allergy to peanuts, this could be dangerous and or deadly. Yeah. uh, This type of testing. So, you know, you get a reaction to one, we're going to give you more. That is not appropriate. And that is not the, the, no physician oral supervised food challenge would go like this. No. No. You stop as soon as you have symptoms. Right. You have your results. Right. Wow. Yeah. So that one is not safe. No. uh, And should not be done. Um, And then there's hair analysis. And unfortunately, I've talked to patients who've, you know, done this. Um, They will send hair samples in and check them against a database. And those who display over a certain percentage have, you know, if they have symptoms, we'll say, well, that's, you know, that's an allergy or an intolerance to Hmm. a food. There just isn't really any published studies to support this practice. In fact, one study that I really enjoyed reading, um, they had (laughs) hair samples taken from non- nine non-allergic subjects. So people didn't have allergies. Okay. And they sent them to three different labs where different results were found in each lab, essentially. Okay, yes. <laughs> Which just tells you that these are not particularly reliable. Right, can't reproduce it. Exactly, so. yeah, exactly. Yes, not a good study. All right, or not a good... Good way to test, yeah. yeah. 
So then the one I think you and I probably see the most with our patients is these home food sensitivity tests or these IgG tests. Yes. Um, I posted something on Facebook a few weeks ago about this type of testing, and uh-huh. I got a lot of, oh my, type of reactions people uh-huh. didn't realize because they sound super legitimate. Yeah. When you read about them, you're like, oh, wow, I could really right. you know, find out what I'm you know, intolerant to. Uh So if you've watched TV or if you've been online, you've probably run across advertisements for these types of home food sensitivities tests. These are sort of often marketed as sort of one of a kind or here's a celebrity endorser. Hmm. They're also really expensive. The usual cost is $200 and up. Wow. So you could start with something easily $500 or more to diagnose yourself with some food intolerances or allergies. So how they do this is that you send in a blood sample Mm -hmm. and it's tested for IgG antibodies instead of IgE antibodies. Okay. So you've only talked about IgE so far. So this is IgE. Right. So the the IgG is actually sort of thought by many practitioners Mm-hmm. Not physicians, but practitioners to sort of diagnose food allergies or intolerances. The problem is IgG is what we call a memory antibody. So it actually indicates okay. exposure to a food. Mm-hmm. And a positive IgG test is basically means you've eaten that food. Right. Okay. Yeah. So right. what's the point of exactly. that? So unfortunately, this is where a lot of people get into trouble. They don't feel well. Uh-huh. They pursue some... Home sure. sensitivity of testing. The list of foods that they are sensitive to comes back, and it's lengthy. I've and they seen look those at come back, right? And, and they look at them, and they say, "Well, that's all the foods that I eat." Right. No wonder <laughs> I feel terrible. Right. Oh no. Well, no. That just indicates these are all the foods that you, you just eat. ate. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yes. This is not. So the test would be different if you did it three weeks later, right. and you and had, had just been on vacation. Foods, different and foods, just ate. exactly. Mm-hmm. So again, the marketing scheme is sort of to list any possible symptom. Okay. You know, are you are you tired? Do you have memory issues? Do you right. have migraines? Do you have um, sleep issues? And right. so if you Just, list any possible symptom, of course, yeah. anybody's going to say, well, yeah, I'm a little right. tired or I right. you know, have a little or trouble some, remembering. Yeah. More likely it's the people that are really struggling with it and then they end up paying for this test it's then. completely bogus, really essentially. Isn't telling them what they need to know. Exactly. So there are no validated tests on the market for food sensitivities. So please do not buy anything online. Please Mm -hmm. do not let any other practitioner run you through these types of sensitivity tests because there is nothing valid um, for the diagnosis of food sensitivity. So diagnosing a food sensitivity is hard work. It involves a detailed diet history. You have to remove the suspect foods for several weeks to see if symptoms improve, and then you reintroduce them. So if you have somebody who believes that they're lactose intolerant, how we actually diagnose that is we take a detailed history Mm -hmm. of their issues with lactose, and then we take it out for a few weeks, then we put it back in, and Uh we see if those symptoms come back. Several studies have shown that people who think they have a food sensitivity to one particular food will often identify the wrong food. Yeah. They'll think it's the cheese on the pizza when maybe it's the crust. 
Right. You it's know? so hard to tell. Right, because we don't eat single foods. That's just not how right. we eat as people. Right. You know, nobody eats the same things every day yeah. and, you know, eats single foods. We eat mixed foods. So mm-hmm. it can be really difficult to identify. So this is something you want to undertake with your physician or a registered dietitian okay. if you want to do an elimination diet. And the other thing to remember is when you remove foods from your diet, you're remo- removing nutrition. Right. So if you remove lactose from your diet, we got to get calcium someplace else. Right. So that's why that's it's right. helpful to work with somebody who knows how to fill in those gaps. Yep. Yep. Leading allergy organizations do not recommend home food sensitivity testing. And again, you'll get this often lengthy list of foods mm-hmm. and often there'll be things, oh gosh, these are things that I, I eat a lot of. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the whole trick. It's yep. the whole scheme. So, and actually we'll put this in our show notes, the CBC Marketplace, Canadian Broadcasting Company, investigated a couple of companies, kind of like a, you know, like an expose yeah. on uh, companies that sell these tests. Yeah. And they sent one of their reporters in, yeah. and she was found to have different reactions or different um, allergies noted from each company, which okay. I thought was interesting. Right. And she said, you know, look at all these foods that I'm allergic to. And she knew she knew the game here. Right. But she said, basically, these are all the foods that I eat. And you can uh-huh. see how people can be sucked into by this. It could lead to unnecessary diet restriction, disordered eating. Oh, um, I know. Yeah. Or making people feel like they have to sort of transform their diets. Again, this is something that can be a real risk for people for developing nutritional deficiencies and, yeah. frankly, a quality of life issue. I know... I know dietitians who have, you know, worked with some of these companies maybe, and I think yeah. this is the same companies that they have worked with and they t- do this blood test. Mm-hmm. And I've seen these tests come back and they're just, it's amazing the differences that they are told that they need to make in their mm-hmm. diet and what they need to eliminate. They're told it's temporary though, and they're working with a dietitian right. to temper, but they just take out all of these right. and and then put them back. I'm much rather, I, rec- I feel like, and it's better for the person to just remove one right. and test it, like you said, right. and see how it's going and well, then try again. If you eliminate 52 foods, which was the one that was causing the problem? Exactly. You're not so you're going to take forever to get that diet back, you to know, anything to anything yet. that's nutritionally sound that's my fear too is not just i mean it's a huge fear that their people are going to have uh unhealthy relationship with food at that point but just the nutrition from a standpoint of a dietitian yeah you just are so concerned with the nutrients that they'd be missing right well and again if this is something that they you know have enjoyed eating you know yeah you can cut out a lot of healthy foods this way unfortunately too for absolutely no no good reason right so I think this is something, you know, if, you, if you're tempted by one of these tests, please don't pursue them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're not going to give you the information you need. And um, you, you, what you're going to get back is a list of foods that you eat. Right. And again, <laughs> so interesting. And it's such a scam yeah. because, again, it, it's going after people's, people who are not feeling well. It, it makes me a little angry. It feels very fraudish in, mm-hmm. in many ways situated to me because you're going after people who don't feel well. And yeah. so they're taking these tests in the hope that they will feel well and they're eliminating all these foods. And of course, you know, when you're eliminating foods, you might say, well, yeah, I feel better. Yeah. You know, because you know, first of all, what you're doing. Right. You know, you're eliminating <laughs> foods and you're like, well, that must be what's making me feel better. Right. But also, you know, if you ate kind of a bad diet beforehand and you yeah. eliminated a bunch of junk food by, yeah. well, you might feel better. Right. But it, 
doesn't mean that you're allergic or intolerant to them in any way. Right. Okay. Good points. So finally, I want to wrap up with just some changes in the peanut allergy guidance. And you yes. kind of talked about this at the beginning, um, how we were told, and I know even when I was pregnant, which mm-hmm. has not been, you know, 12, 13 years ago, yeah. I was told to, to avoid peanuts when I was pregnant. I was avoid, told That's, to avoid them while breastfeeding. Yeah, see, and I wasn't. I was right. pregnant about 20 years ago. Right. Right. I had 25 years ago. And that was not a that was not told to me at right. all. And I... Never heard that. Right. So, you know, we used to think that if you didn't expose a child's immune system to peanuts, that they wouldn't develop a peanut allergy. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it didn't really pan out that way. We saw more and more kids, you know, developing peanut allergies despite right. being super strict about, you know, keeping them out of child's diet, your child's diet until they were, you know, much older right. or keeping out of a maternal diet. Right. We still saw these developing in, in quite increased rates. I know you and I both listened to podcasts on this, and what they have found is that kids um, in Israel, for example, didn't have the rate of peanut allergies that were found in the United States, and they kind of isolated it down to this this food that children in Israel eat called bamba, Bamba. which is peanut-based kind of a puff. Yeah. I've eaten them before. They're Uh kind of like peanut Cheetos. That's the best right. way to describe them in terms of their texture. Uh-huh. They're like peanut-flavored Cheetos. Yeah, something um, you can give to an infant who'd be able to eat it. And, right. Yeah. But they're exposing these little, little, these yeah. little children to this bamba, mm-hmm. and they did not develop peanut allergies because mm-hmm. they were getting it so early. Yep. So there was a study in 2015 that called the LEAP study, the Learning Early About Peanut Allergy Study, that showed that early introduction can actually possibly prevent the development of food that peanut allergy in many children so it is now recommended that kids who are age appropriate of course for eating solid foods Uh should be given peanut containing foods by at least 11 months of age if not a little bit earlier like six months of age yeah and so this is crazy to think about doing now but it's because it's it was so flying the face of of what we told people for you know a couple of decades and i think that came out of the fear of uh, peanut allergies are so serious. Right. So if they do, if you do have a peanut allergy, right. it is so serious. And we're like, we just right. want to protect everyone. Right. So we don't want everybody. And so it's just fascinating that we had to come 180 from that and right. say, no, actually. By restricting them, by we restricting may, may them, made this worse. We actually saw an increase in peanut allergy. Right. So I think what's important when we talk about the guidance change is that these guidelines for introducing peanuts only apply to children who do not have a reaction to peanuts. So if you have a child who has a reaction to a peanut, do not follow this guidance. That's not what this is about. But for children without peanut allergies, Mm -hmm. and especially for children with eczema, which is super common in kids. Uh That's um, what my son had. Right. (laughs) Um, There are, you know, severe eczema we'll talk about here in moderate eczema. Mm -hmm. Um, But for children in this, in the kind of this group one, this is from the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Disease. Okay. Around four months of age, an infant should be put into one of three groups. So again, this will be done by the pediatrician. Okay. Decide what group your child falls into. So group one would be a child who has severe eczema or has an egg allergy or both. Uh-huh. They should have peanuts introduced into the diet as early as four to six months of age. Oh, wow. Which seems so early. Yes. Um, again, 
children might want to be, they might want to have your child uh, evaluated for peanut sensitization before eating it. So they might okay. do a skin prick or an IgE test. So you have a parent maybe who has a peanut allergy and is a little nervous about right. this. Or if yeah. you know you have a child who has really severe eczema, you might say, right, hey, let's, right. well, let's go yeah. ahead and just make sure that we're not going to run into a problem exactly. here. Right. Um, it may be best you might want to ask your provider about, okay, I might want to feed my child this peanut in the, do- in <laughs> the, the doctor's, doctor's office, office first. You know, yep. So if something does happen, that I'm prepared. So again, you want to check with your child's healthcare provider mm-hmm. about where and when they should have that first peanut experience. And again, like I said, it might be best to do this under a physician's supervision. Okay. Group two is children with mild to moderate eczema. So you want to introduce peanut-containing foods at six months of age. Your child's healthcare provider will tell you whether your child's eczema is mild or moderate or severe. So okay. again, have them evaluate that. Okay. Um, you can request to feed first in the doctor's office if you're still concerned. Uh-huh. But that first peanut experience can be by six months of age. And then that group three is children with no eczema or food allergies. Okay. You can introduce peanuts pretty much anytime you want. Again, by 11 months of age is ideal. Mm-hmm. It can be done at home in an age appropriate manner or maybe with other solid foods. Okay. Like I said, this does not apply to children who already have a diagnosed peanut allergy. So these are for children who do not have diagnosed peanut allergies, but want to you want to go ahead and expose them to them earlier than we used to. Right, and I would also add that do not add peanut for the first time with solid foods that are also new. You right. always want to introduce it right. individually as the only new food at that time. Right. Yeah. If you're wondering about how you would introduce this, if you go to the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases website, they have a beautiful color handout which we'll put in our show notes on how to do this. Okay. So you have to think about, you know, you're not going to give a child who is one a whole peanut. That's yeah. not appropriate. Right. That's a choking <laughs> right. risk at that point. Right. Um, peanut butter that's you know, from a spoon right. out of a jar is too thick right. for young children, mm-hmm. which again should not be given to a child that's less than four years of age. Mm-hmm. Um, so the this particular website gives great suggestions. Okay. Thin, smooth peanut butter, peanut butter powder or flour, smooth peanut butter puree is an appropriate way to do that. And again, they have really great ideas on how to do that on that website. Awesome. Or Bamba. Or Bamba, exactly, <laughs> which you can buy at Trader Joe's. Um, there is no evidence for moms who are pregnant, expecting moms, that by excluding peanuts from their diet, that they will lower their risk of uh, their child developing a peanut allergy. So I would love more studies on that. Right. There's would, absolutely so no questions. There is no evidence that restricting peanuts will mm-hmm. reduce food allergies in your child. Yeah. So eat a normal, healthy diet. Eat right. peanuts. Yeah. They're good for you. You know, it makes me wonder if you do eat peanut butter when you're pregnant, that your child would be less likely. Yeah, you want. I mean, that makes sense to me. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, kind of that exposure. Yeah, Um, and then of course, breastfeeding we know um, is a good way to help reduce eczema in the first three to four months of life, which again could theoretically reduce the risk of an allergy. Yeah. So again, um, breastfeeding is just another reason to breastfeed. It's very important. And then there's some allergy myths and facts. And I took this from the Nationwide Children's Hospital blog. And I think this Mm -hmm. is here in Columbus. And I I think this is a really just some good wrap-ups of what we're talking about today. Okay. One of the myths that we say is allergy testing for peanuts is not reliable in children from two to five years of age, and that is actually not true. Skin testing for food or any other allergies is reliable at any other age. But again, it's only recommended when there are symptoms, you know, reproducible, immediate onset symptoms. So again, we don't want to just start testing 
every child right. with a screening panel right. just to see. That's not appropriate. Okay. So again, if your child has symptoms, we have to see the that's symptoms. We want to then we do the testing, not vice versa. Gotcha. Myth number two: My child can have peanuts in small amounts, even though he is allergic. <laughs> again, there is no safe amount. Right. None. Right. <laughs> no safe amount. Peanut dust, trace amounts in cross contact, and you know you go into these restaurants and you know peanut dust everywhere. You'll see them on signs on doors. Right. Again. Parents and families need to be prepared, know what are in dishes, and they need to know how foods are prepared, especially mm-hmm. in restaurants. This is where, again, eating out can be very life-changing when yeah. you have a child with a food allergy. Labels on packaged products should be read every time with mm-hmm. a child with a food allergy because in manufacturers can change ingredients at any time yep. for any reason. Yes. All food handlers, especially things like restaurants, bakeries, ice cream parlors, should be notified that your child has a food allergy. Mm-hmm. You know, we should see a change of gloves. We should see, uh, you know, if not from a communal type of toppings. If your uh-huh. child has a wheat allergy, they shouldn't be, you know, getting their particular item right next to the Oreo cookies. Right. You know, that yeah. are in the ice cream shop. Yeah. Um, so ideally, you know, we need separate things for children with food allergies. Okay. And then finally, myth number three, giving children with food allergies small amounts of that food will help them grow out of it faster again you think Mm -hmm. of oh well if i expose them to that right this is not what we were talking about in the previous segment right they've already been shown to have symptoms that's an allergy you're done you're done right exactly yeah until you've been proven to have grown out of it by a physician okay there are things coming down the pike, possibly, but I don't know how soon this is going to happen. You know, this oral immunotherapy, kind of this exposure through small amounts to kind of build tolerance. But again, uh-huh. this is stuff physicians do. Right. Not you don't parents. do this at home. Not parents. Right. Again, it is strongly encouraged to discuss with your pediatrician or if you have a child with an allergy, a pediatric allergist, prior to introducing peanut-containing foods to your infant. Again, if you have any suspect that they might be allergic, again, yeah. if they have eczema or other allergies, um, it's good to have that conversation before you do any type of introduction. Okay. All right. I feel so much better. I know so much more about allergies and the reactions. And I always got that that IgE versus IgG confused and didn't, you know, and if you don't, if you're not familiar with it, you know, it sounds a good game. It's like a lot of stuff that's out there. It sounds a good game if you don't know about it. So I really appreciate you doing all the look into this and the definitions for us right. well I'm in, I feel like especially with some of these home food sensitivity they're, they're just preying on people yeah they really are feel it so makes bad. me yeah. angry yes I um, know because people are spending their hard-earned money to be told to maybe have a horrible relationship with food right, right? or to make or... changes that are completely unnecessary yes, exactly. and then people come in and they're trying to get us to sort it out yeah can you tell me what i'm allergic to no i, I can't right you know that's right. not that's not appropriate right so well, thanks amy so if you have any future ideas for podcasts for us we would love to hear from you at dish at secretliferd.com or check out our website and there's a link there for our email at secretliferd.com. Hope to catch you next time wherever you get your podcasts.